grace of God here this morning. Amen. Amen. We can be different when we walk out of this place. Chains can have fallen off. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I was thinking this morning about Paul's words when he said, when he indicated that there were two tables of provision for us to consider the table of the Lord and what he called the table of demons. And he says in that context that you cannot partake of both. To partake of one is necessarily to exclude the other. And we sit here this morning at the table of the Lord. Amen. And I I was, when Brother Dan was speaking, I, I thought of some of these scriptures that I had written down about God's provision, about God's grace. And I just want to read through them real quickly and then I'll resume. In Psalms 84, 11, it says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In Philippians 4, it says, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In Psalms 23, he says, Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is working in us, to him be glory. In 2 Timothy, it says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And finally, in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it is written He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. All of these scriptures tell us that God's provision is ample and sufficient. It is faithful and able to make us everything we need to be. But what the Lord was speaking to me this morning was that we cannot have an indifferent, haphazard, picky, choosy mindset when it comes to the table of the Lord. We have to come to the table of the Lord knowing that laid before us is the energizing power to confront and prevail against onslaughts tomorrow that we do not yet see. This is what I wrote down and the Lord spoke to me before I heard Brother Dan's message. There is a provision laid before you this morning that is not just about remedying yesterday's problems and it is not just about satisfying this morning's hunger, but it is about equipping you for what is coming tomorrow. And if you despise the table of the Lord or find it contemptible, then you're not going to take into your spiritual system the energizing grace 
that he is able to make a bound toward you and make you sufficient in everything. When the Lord was asked by Paul concerning the affliction that was like a tent peg in his side, the Lord did not say, my grace is excessive. Instead, he said, my grace is sufficient. And that word sufficient in the English means just enough. Not any excess and not any lacking. Just enough. God has placed us in the body in such a way that we cannot become independent from him or inflated in our righteousness. Instead, he has arranged our lives, even allowing our trials and temptations to be such that we cannot overcome them. We cannot endure them apart from an ongoing relationship. God is seeking less after our static perfection than after our continual dependence in relationship. He wants us to turn to him. He wants us to learn that we can do nothing without him. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And then he makes this statement, separated from me, you can do nothing. In Acts 17, Paul says, God has appointed the bounds of our habitation and the exact places of our dwelling that we might seek God. The person who seeks God is not the person who has found everything on their own. So when he says God has set up our life so that we'll seek him, He's implying God has set up our life with some lacks, with some needs, with some hurts, with some struggles, so that we wouldn't learn to be independent of him. That's not an accident. That's not something we complain about. That's not something we wonder why it happened. That's something we thank God for. Paul was a man of unparalleled revelation, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, but he acknowledged that God had allowed the affliction in his body so that he wouldn't become exalted by his many revelations. Think about it. Paul saw this affliction that he asked God to take away. He saw it as a blessing because he saw that it made him dependent on God. On more than one occasion, my dad said that he thanked God for the afflictions he suffered for the whole 50 years of his life in ministry because he said it helped him stay dependent on the prayers and grace of God's people. You know, I think that those who, who suffer from temptations, from sins that would try to pacify the flesh. Oftentimes, at the root of that failing is an unwillingness to avail themselves fully of the relationships and the grace that God is extending, not of their choosing. If the carnal nature expresses 
its tyranny through its will, and certainly it does, then will is most expressed through choice. And so Satan launched the enslavement of mankind to sin by telling them they could make their own choices apart from God. He said, go ahead and partake of this kind of knowledge and you will know for yourself good and evil. I ministered in Idaho this past week. The Lord's Prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name and authority. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And I said, whenever a God wants to codify his reign, his dominion, he seeks to impose his will. So we say, your kingdom come, that's his reign, dominion, your will be done. If we want Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, then we accept that his will must have its way, and thus his kingdom is established in our midst. And it's the same for the tyrant, as the sister said, of self. Your carnal nature is in stark competition, is in embittered competition against God. And when we want our will to be done, it is because we want our kingdom to come. But when we want His will to be done, it is because we want His kingdom to come. So Jesus, when He was the second Adam wrestling with the terrible choice in the second garden, the choice to trust God and to make the full sacrifice that love required, he trampled on that tyranny of human will when he said, Abba, Father, the one who provides, the one who takes care of me, the one who has spoken from heaven reminding me time and again that I am his son and that I am well-pleasing, Abba, Father, Everything you want to do, you can do. All things are possible for you. If it is possible, we know it's technically possible, but what he's saying is if it does not undermine your design, your will, your plan, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he says, nevertheless, even still, not my will, but your will be done. And there's the perfect unity between man and God. There's the reconciliation in the man Christ Jesus when he does not try to impose his human will in place of God's divine will, his divine bulema purpose and design. I'm going to come back and say that human will expresses itself more through choice than any other way. That's why in this world where we are made to believe that we are little gods, little demiurges creating our own existence, the freedom is defined in terms of choice. If I have many choices, then I have lots of freedom. If I only have one choice, then I don't have much freedom. 
It's an illusion. It's a lie. It's sucking us into the pantheon of pluralism that's leading to the pantheon of, of, uh, of multiple gods, of all the gods that can meet all our various needs. And it's a deception. True freedom is not in all the thousands of choices as my dad taught us, but true freedom is being able to give yourself wholly in the safety of covenant to trust one unreservedly, namely God. Amen. And so the carnal will, the carnal mind preserves its life by refusing to cut off options, by maintaining choices. And it doesn't like it when God places a simple either or choice before it. How many times did the Bible do this in the days of Joshua? He says, you got to make the choice. Righteous obedience is never coerced. God will not extort your obedience. Even revelations and psalms shows us that when everything goes wrong, people will still not repent. God will not extort your obedience. And what is given grudgingly in that manner, he doesn't accept. But he will bring a choice before you, a choice of who you're going to trust, him or yourself. And so in the days of Joshua, he says to them, if it seems undesirable to you to serve Yahweh, well, then choose whom you will serve. And also Elijah went at the prophets of Baal. He says, how long will you waver between your opinions and your opinions? If Yahweh is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, serve him. Well, just go ahead and make a choice. And James expresses the same exasperation when he says, the double-minded man receives nothing from the Lord. You've got to go ahead and make up your mind. You've got to commit yourself to a course where you're not in control. You see, the control freak doesn't want surprises because they don't want to be blindsided by something they didn't expect and anticipate. But a child of God expects surprises, is excited by surprises, because around every corner there may be some encounter that deposits more grace or provides a calling and direction. We don't understand. We don't know what we need. We don't even know how to pray. But before we even ask, our Father knows what we need, and He's already sending the answer if we've got the attitude of trust. But those who live by the illusion of, of controlling their own existence, they despise trust. They want a, a version of trust that actually requires no trust. Trust requires risk. It entails relying on someone else's input for what you don't know. If you know it, it doesn't require faith. It doesn't require trust. But he beckons you into a life that is not mapped out in your carnal mind. He says to Abraham, go out. And Abraham goes out not knowing where he's going. But his ignorance about the details of the future is no hindrance to his journey of faith because he knows whom he believes and is persuaded he can trust him. So it's an illusion. It's just an illusion that we can control our existence by anticipating everything. We're not omniscient. God is. 
He sees the end from the beginning. He saw Sister Anne's cancer when as yet it was 10 years in the coming. And he saw her entrance into glory when as yet it was not yet. Amen. And he put on her heart the opportunity, Brother Jerry and Sister Anne, to come to the table of the Lord and to drink deeply and to partake of his goodness. And in partaking of it for 10 years, they were just ready. I dare say they were not, they did not have storehouses of grace overflowing. Well, we'll take a little today and leave it the rest for later. They were just ready. Those of us who have gone through trials, those of us who have who've had to make this surrender, this sacrifice, we can testify that His grace was not excessive, that His grace was sufficient, and it kept us coming back to Him, kept us dependent on the relationship. If we don't live within the limits of grace, we render ourselves powerless to Satan. We become and show ourselves to be the one whom he may devour. Doesn't Peter tell us that? That your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? And does not the Bible tell us who his eyes fall upon? He beholds every high thing. So he's seeking who's moving in pride? Who's scoffing at the table of the Lord? Who thinks they can come to a meeting and sit with their arms crossed and not apprehend all that they need from the Lord's table? Amen. Who is that? Oh, there he is. I can identify him. I'll, he's easy pickings. The devil is looking at us. The devil is eyeing us to see, are you fully engaged in the relationships that would provide you grace? Are you fully engaged in the walk with God that would deposit grace? Or are you going back into your will and your carnal mind, but basically keeping up with the motions? Can you surrender? Can you trust God? You see, you're not going to insulate yourself from the attack of the devil by building yourself up in your most unholy strength or your most unholy rationalism. You're going to build yourself up in your most holy faith. Amen. You're going to keep yourself in the love of God and that's how you're going to be able to resist the devil. You're going to keep yourself in vulnerable, childlike trust. And the Lord knows those who are His. In other words, who are not their own, who've been bought with a price, and none will snatch them from His hand. Amen. But are you still His? Are you still surrendered? Amen. And so you see people from time to time who get sucked and hooked and snared at the table of demons. Perhaps they hate themselves. Oh, why is this happening? Why am I doing this? I would suggest to you that you are not availing yourself of either the service which God has called you to, nor the relationships which he has provided for you in the body. We are told by the, the Paul and Peter that the body is a repository of grace. That God's saving grace is handed to us from people. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10. He says, as good stewards of the variegated, multifaceted, various, complete grace of God, minister it to one another. Amen. As God supplies. 
There is grace that is coming to us as we listen to the songs. There is grace as we listen to the message. But if, you, if, you are, if you're struggling, if, let's create a little analogy. Let's say that you live in a house and you're told you, there's this nasty candy in the closet that you're not allowed to have. All the kids are listening. There's this nasty candy in the closet that you're not allowed to have. Maybe it's made with one of those talls or something. I don't know. But, and, and, and you're not allowed to have it. It's in your closet, but you can access it. And then there's dinner time. And at dinner time, the table is spread with meats and vegetables and starches and so on and so forth and drink. And you come out and you're like, yeah, I don't think I'm hungry. You know, and you go, yeah, I, I would rather not have that. I prefer steak and that's just roast. And, you know, you go back into your room. And then about three o'clock in the morning, you're just, your tummy's gnawing and you're hungry and you're like, God, why have you made it so hard on me? I don't know why I can't resist this. And you go in and break open the candy wrapper and you feel so condemned and guilty. And who's going to feel sorry for you? I blew it, Mom. I ate that candy you told me not to eat. Well, duh. You scorned the table I laid before you last night. So a capricious, choosing kind of Christian no, I don't want that relationship. I would prefer this one. Yeah, not brown gravy. Cream is my preference. A capricious, proud Christian who still has the carnal nature on the throne, expressing it through the imposition of their will, manifested through choices that they're making, should not evoke the pity of God or anyone else. My God shall supply all your needs. But are you willing to take his supply as he gives it? Are you willing to come to the table and say, what's for dinner? It's not my call. It may not be my way. It may not even be my timing. But when the dinner bell rings, I'm going to be there. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Because I know that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What we're talking about is cultivating a relationship of dependence. It's exactly what the devil doesn't want for you. He wants insolence. He wants conceit. He wants spiritual pride to take over where you feel like you can come and go as you wish and you can pick and choose as you want. But if we could abase that stupid false freedom, recognizing it for the enslavement that it is, and humble ourselves and say, Lord... I am your supplicant. My soul craves for you like the deer pants for the water. Amen. Please, God, give me anything and I will receive it. Thank you, Jesus. I, I just know that we would start taking in spiritual nutrients. And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, the thought may cross your mind, but you would have strength to say no. Amen. You see this will, I said expresses itself as choices, but... Really, prior to choices is just the knowing, amen, the assessment. Prior to choice is evaluation or assessment. Can we agree with that? Prior to choices is knowing, evaluating, assessing. 
And I've pointed out how one of the English words, uh, doubt, from the New Testament, in its original language is diacrino in the Greek. Don't, don't quote me on that uh, pronunciation, but the word is diacrino. And diacrino, where Jesus forbids us to doubt, thank you, Lord, is it means to assess, to evaluate, to make a judgment concerning. And it's translated as doubt. And there is one word that literally just means doubt, but this one's first definition is not to call something into question. Is that a fair definition of our word doubt, to call something into question? If somebody tells me, put, you know, put $5 in the bank and tomorrow it'll be worth $5 million. Of course, that'd be realistic with the rate of inflation. But anyway, <laughs> um, if somebody tells me something like that and I'm like, yeah, I doubt that. Well, that means I call it into question, right? But that's not the primary word in the New Testament for doubt doesn't first and foremost mean to call it into question. It means to assess it with your carnal mind, to evaluate it, to make a judgment concerning it. It doesn't mean to, to question the veracity of a claim. It just means to evaluate the claim with your head. So before choice is evaluation. And what I'm saying is who is the knower in your life? Who is the evaluator? <laughs> Who is the assessor? A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. How many of us have a natural man that we're trying to crucify? Well, I got news for you. That part of you doesn't accept the things of God. And you know what? It'll never accept the things of God. Not after receiving the Spirit not after being baptized, not after living for the Lord for 10 years, it'll never accept the things of God. That natural man, Paul said he made his slave. Shh, quiet, slave. You're not allowed to talk. I don't want to go there. Be quiet, slave. You're coming with me. He said he had to put that thing in bondage, that perspective, that analytical mind. Mm, that natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are... Have you ever scoffed at what God was asking you to do? Newsflash, that was your flesh. Have you ever thought the thing God was asking you to do was just dumb? What? I'm not going to do that. That person's no better than I am. I'm not going to humble myself to them. Well, Paul's giving us an important indicator here. He's telling us that your wicked man that is being corrupted by deceit thinks that God's way is laughable. It's a joke. Kind of like Lot's sons-in-law when the angels came to take him out of Sodom. <laughs> it says that they thought he was joking. So that's how dumb, <laughs> that is so dumb. You ever thought that when somebody proposed that you humble yourself and you said, sure. Well, that just shows that the carnal nature has taken back over the throne of your life. That just shows that Jesus is no longer Lord and that blinded carnal man has sidled back onto the throne.
And the remedy for that is not to reason, to rationalize with the carnal man, is it now? The remedy is to fall on your face and say, God, how did I get here again? How did I let this blinded man of conceit climb back on to the throne where Jesus sits? How did I push God out of his rightful place and usurp it myself? The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for, because they are dumb to him. So the carnal man doesn't usually say, that's too hard and I'm a coward. He says, that's dumb, that's silly, that's foolish. He doesn't usually say, that's too humiliating and I'm a peacock. These would be the truth. He says, that's dumb, that's foolish, that's silly. He says, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's what the carnal man says. Why doesn't the carnal man accept the things of the Spirit of God? Because they are hard for him? No. Because they are death for him? Well, no, but that's not what he says. Why doesn't he accept it? Because they are dumb to him. And he cannot understand them. Implying that the carnal man only does what he understands. Do you think that's true? But the faithful man does and goes where God calls. Not because of what he understands, but because of who he trusts. Because they are spiritually appraised. When sacrifice seems a waste, dumb, foolish, this signals that the flesh is taken back over. In Galatians 4, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? He, he clarifies something. He says, you've come to know God. But then he's like, no, it's not even really that. Because the flesh can't know anything. So even what you know about God is God in you helping you know that about God. Your carnal mind cannot appraise or understand anything as it ought to. Only the Spirit of God that is in us. How does the scripture go, Brother Daniel? No one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man. Even so, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But then he goes on and says, but he has given us his spirit. Thank you, Jesus. And he tells the Corinthians, second chapter, that we may know the things freely given us by God. So before choice comes evaluation. Lord, could you change the way we evaluate? Could you change the eyes through which we see, the mind through which we contemplate? Could you empower us to pull off the binoculars of judgment and to see through the eyes of faith? Could we shatter the magnifying glass of criticism and analysis through fear that magnifies all the risks to our carnal man, and could we just pray after it for a little bit? Paul says to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, foolishness. You know what thinks that God's cross 
The invitation to sacrifice is dumb. It's the Gentile inside of you. We're no longer supposed to be Gentiles. We're supposed to be fellow citizens and members of God's household. Amen? He put His name on us when we were baptized. He made us part of His people. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we might be called the sons of God. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him to them, He gave the authority, the power, the exousia to become sons of God. You have the power to be a son of God. At your disposal is the energizing authority, access, and power, and love to become a son of God. But what is a son of God? As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, Romans 8, 14. You cannot be a son of God unless you're willing to be led. Unless you're willing to not be in control is what I just said. Unless you're willing to follow Unless you're willing to be unsure in your flesh, but sure in the relationship and move out nonetheless. Who is the knower in your life? Who is the assessor in your life? Is it the flesh? Well, if it's the flesh, it'll think the will of God is silly. It'll think the will of God is impossible. Because without faith, you know, he doesn't say in Hebrews 11 that those who don't have faith think they can't please God but they really can he said those who won't walk in faith cannot please God the energizing ability to do God's word is the faith response when his word comes and if you don't respond toward the table of provision if you don't receive that word as the word of God which is at work in you mightily who believe to quote Paul then when you say, God, I think it's impossible, he responds, well, it is, because you're not responding in faith. Lord, we're moving into a tough time because the witness is going to increase. Thank you, Jesus. And temptations are going to increase. And meetings are going to decrease. And the lion is going to prowl, and he's going to behold every high thing. Don't let him behold me, Lord. Don't let him behold me, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Don't let him behold a man making all the choices for himself. Don't let him behold a man trying to make himself God by the imposition of his will. Don't let him behold a man knowing and deciding for himself. Thank you, Jesus. Let him behold one panting for the presence and the word of God like the deer pants in the desert for the water brook. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And the Lord will make us to stand if we'll walk in that humility. Amen. Does the Lord want you to lay aside the carnal mind and its way of knowing today? Thank you, Jesus. Does anybody want to lay that down? Do you like the way that makes you feel? Do you like the vision of the future and the faith in your heart when you start to know after the flesh? Paul said we used to know even Christ after the flesh. Remember? Paul used to be a Pharisee, and I bet he cocked his head and, well, you know, I've heard that message before. Yeah, he's preached that. I, I was in Capernaum. He said something very similar. That's the flesh. But he said... There came a time 
when we knew no one after the flesh anymore. Have you ever known after the flesh? Oh, I think we all have known after the flesh. And if we don't know that, we're still knowing after the flesh. I want to know after the Spirit. I want to know that I don't know anything until the Spirit starts to reveal it. I want to judge nothing before it's time, but let the light of day bring it to light. Thank you, Jesus. I want to seek the Lord three times if that's what it takes, but wait until He talks to me about my problem and shows me the place of grace. Hallelujah. Oh, Lord, help us to lay it down. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And the carnal man says, but I don't understand it. And the song says, when I trust you, I don't need to understand. And the word of faith says, I understand what I need to understand. I understand the character of God. I understand the love of God. I understand the power of God. I understand that the presence of God is tugging on my heart right now to let something fall, the crown of my own decision-making at his feet. Amen. I understand that I'm not supposed to be sitting on this throne, but the Lord Jesus is. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. This is the scripture that arrested my attention this morning. Who is the knower and assessor? Talking to the Philippians. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. He's saying something there. He's saying love is absolutely the foundation of knowing and assessing and discerning. If you look at something or someone in less than the love of God, the accuser of the brethren is going to slip in. Amen. He's going to say something to you. Amen. And, and uh, he goes on. This is where... He says, you know, that his chains are there and, and it's, it's become evident to the whole palace guard and all the rest that my chains are in Christ. I'm, they could, the, the whole palace guard could discern that Paul was being constrained not by criminal, criminality or something, but because he loved God. He was there because he loved God. But the, the contrast is interesting. The whole palace guard saw that. But then he said, and most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains. You know, there, he's saying, you know, there is a certain confidence that a person in the church can have because they have forgotten who they are. They've forgotten their myopia. And the whole prison guard could see something, but only most of the brethren got the message. Amen. And he says that they were, that most of them were emboldened by it. It freed them up for something. Amen. And speaking of those, some, he says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. You know, we, we want to make a contrast there. A lot of these others are, maybe they're in a different denomination. <laughs> they're in a different church, the ones that are preaching out of 
selfish ambition. I remember Brother Dan sharing a few a year or so ago about the word ambition. It literally meant to amble around to canvas for votes, you know, for my side of the story or something, you know. And and the word selfish ambition in the Greek, Eritrea, actually means exactly the same thing. It, it was only used, it only appeared before the New Testament by Aristotle, and it was about politicians going around trying to get, get votes, you know, trying to buttress our side, you know, what, what we want, our will. And so what Paul is contrasting here in all of this is even within the church, it's possible for people to be canvassing for their opinion, their their way of looking at things, amen. And that means love is no longer the knower and assessor. And, and I, there, there's a lot of other stuff here I don't want to get into, but I'll tell you, folks, we're, we're, I think you said something about a lot's getting ready to happen, and it is. We're, we're, I woke up, and I, I can't even describe it, but I woke up about two weeks ago, and just with flashes I, I could grasp the times I'm talking about the negative things that are coming in the world you know when it says there in Revelation that the armies encompassed the the camp of the Saints it's not talking about some little geographical place over in Megiddo it's talking about a spiritual reality that man the whole world is going to be against what the church stands for you know Amen. Amen. And I'll tell you what the devil wants to do is to get us to know each other after the flesh. Amen. He wants us instead of, if, if you've got an opinion about somebody in this body and you don't love them, your opinion is wrong. If, 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 you, if something has come up, amen, I, I'll tell you what happens. I mean, I know it's what happens, <laughs> you know. You are thrown back by the devil, did God really say, you know? And so he throws you back on your powers of knowing and assessment. And that's when he can put his little something, I mean just a little something in you that begins then to know after the flesh instead of after love. And after a while, the whole story, because you start canvassing in your mind, and start politicking for for your your side of the story amen instead of surrendering to god's amen this is the devil's plan amen and we cannot let it happen amen, amen. we're hearing the word of god today to to put that old man to death amen we need to love one another amen above all paul says put on love which is the perfect bond amen What's going to connect us, amen, is being on guard of exactly what Brother Ossie is saying today, amen. And the way the devil moves, amen, is depositing these little things, amen. And, and there's a little conflict, there's a little something that goes on, and, and we sit back just for a second, and boop, he pops something into our head. And we don't even realize it's happened. And then it builds, you know, and then we can justify then we can canvas for more votes. <laughs> you, do you see what happens? Amen. 
and we need to drive it out. Amen. 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 Our, our, our protection is going to be our unity. Amen. Our protection is going to be that there's, there's no gap between the, the beams of the ark. Amen. 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 God did it all out. Amen. I, I'll tell you, knowledge and discernment is absolutely dependent upon love. Amen. Which is the Spirit of God. Amen. Amen. I'm just saying, that's the scripture that God gave me this morning. It seems to fit. Amen. 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 Let's do it. Amen. Amen. God, get it all out. Amen. If I got conflicts with somebody, do I look down on somebody? Ooh, God. Ooh. Am I really assessing out of love? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God's called us to the kingdom for such a time as this. Amen. He says right after this, so therefore walk worthy of the call. Amen. Amen. Let's let's clean it out. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to tell you a story, and it's very funny, but that's not my point. It's to show the mechanism and the power of narratives and assessments that are wrong. This is a true story, and I told Aaron Alexander that I was going to tell it. So when he told me, I determined right then and there that this was illustrative of a bigger issue. So he told us that when they were living in that small single wide there in Idaho, at two o'clock in the morning, his young daughter comes frantically into the bedroom and says, Daddy, Daddy, there are people outside walking around and they are uh, uh, taking things out of their car and, and lifting the trunk and, and, and I don't know what they're doing. He was very startled, very alarmed, and he said, oh, wow. He said, so they've got the jump on me. They know where, what, how this is, and I'm, I'm at the disadvantage here. So with uh, uh, still clad in his pajamas and so on and so forth, barefoot, he went sneaking out the back door and to, to come around and, and uh, hedge him off from the side. And so he, he's getting along and he comes up and sure enough, there are these people, they're loading stuff into their trunk, they're closing the trunk, it's like they've just robbed me blind, and, and they get in their minivan and they just start going. Well, he gets inside of his SUV and he starts tearing after them. By the time he gets it turned around, there's, they're a little further ahead and he's ripping down after them. He makes the turn fast and comes to the stoplight they're not going fast. They're just kind of going real complacent in their theft. And they come to the stop, lot, stop sign, and then they just kind of roll through it and keep going. And he gets to the stop sign. He's trying to keep up with them. They get out on Main Road. They're heading away. These people are going to get away from me. So he's going a little faster. And meanwhile, he's got like 1,200 jars of pickles canned in the back of the SUV. And he feels the weight a little bit. But sure enough, as he's gaining on them, all of a sudden he gets shot. And he's like, his car goes off to the side, and he's like, they just shot me. They just shot my wheel out. And he gets out, and sure enough, the wheel is disengaged, and not just the tire, the wheel. He's, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. He's standing there barefoot, his hair every which way. And he's like, this is unreal out in the countryside of Idaho. And so he flags down a trucker and, listen, man, listen to what just happened. And he realizes the trucker's looking at him at 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> dressed like this or not dressed like this. And 
And he says, yeah, sure, have a good day, sir, have a good day. Another guy comes, he tells the same breathless story, yeah, yeah, have a great day, sir. And they just keep leaving him. So finally he gets on and he tells Rebecca, you wouldn't believe what just happened. And so I followed him and they shot me. And there was a pause and Rebecca said, well, you know, Brian and Rebecca did lose their luggage at the airport and there was going to be a late delivery man who was going to drop off luggage at our house since they were already gone. And then suddenly he remembers that he jumped over a pile of luggage in his pursuit. <laughs> and this minivan was some decent old delivery people who dropped off their luggage and left and his bearing or ball joint or whatever in the wheel blew just at the right time. <laughs> and they just kept oozing over the, the further hills. And he made his way back home and, you know, everything changed. But one, one little piece of information unraveled a narrative that had him more hot and bothered than he'd been maybe his whole life. He was telling the story to others. He was spreading this, this thing he actually believed. But he was missing one key little piece of information that helped totally rearrange. It was unrelated to what he thought happened. Reality was, that is. And that's the power of fear, defensiveness, and constructs, narrative constructs, where we start to fit events into a, a sequence and a narrative that makes sense of them. But they're false. It's the accuser of the brethren making hay with a delivery at, at, late at night. Amen. So when the devil gets you all freaked out and been out of shape, pray. Talk to someone. And take a second look. It might be late night luggage delivery.